Hello all, and welcome to this episode of No Home for Heroes. No Home for Heroes explores history's military mysteries regarding Americans who are missing in action from our past wars. These long-forgotten MIAs are remembered here. Today's episode is titled, The Fighting Fool from Bowie, Texas, and I'm your host, Rick Stone. No Home for Heroes is a trademark production sponsored by the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. For more information on the Foundation, visit our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. If you're hearing this preview of No Home for Heroes on YouTube or Audio Burst, we invite you to listen to the complete podcast on Apple Podcast or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And now, on with our show. Today's episode is about one of our active case investigations where we need your help to locate a MIA's family to tell them the results of our investigation and our belief of where their missing marine hero lies undiscovered to this very day. The hero without a home we will highlight today is a not-too-perfect marine. He was a marine who chafed under the military's rules and regulations but told his buddy that he thought he would be a, quote, fighting fool, end quote, if if just given the chance. During a final Japanese bonsai charge on Tarawa, the self-proclaimed fighting fool from Bowie, Texas, finally got his chance. When I was assigned as the deputy chief of the World War II Research and Investigations Branch at the Department of Defense's Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command, or JPAC. I often posted the photographs of many of the missing American servicemen whose cases crossed my desk on the walls of my office. I stared into their eyes in the crisp, clear, black and white military photos, hoping to find answers to the questions of their loss and their current location, and I hoped to find in their gaze that very important information. The gesture also made each MIA a real person to me, and not just a file number, and, somehow, it seemed to give them life again. Without even opening his file, Marine Corps Private Jack Rudolph Stambaugh and his photograph told me a lot about him. Taken just nine days after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, The boot camp photo of Jack bespoke of a young man who was looking for a fight. He had the facial expression that said, Don't mess with me or I'll kick your butt. I had seen this many times in my law enforcement career. Jack's countenance also had the cynical, quote, I ain't believing a single word you're saying, end quote, look that bespoke of a hard scrabble life in the small North Texas towns of Wichita Falls and Bowie. The town of Bowie was named after the hero of the Alamo, Jim Bowie, and that was a story that all Texans grew up hearing. And my own father's experience growing up at the same time as an itinerant farmer's son in the same area of North Texas told me that even though Jack was only 18 when he enlisted just two days after Pearl Harbor, Jack Stambaugh had not had an easy life. There were some things about the Marine Corps that Jack probably liked, mainly the three square meals a day that coincided with a growth spurt that saw him add over an inch and a half in height and over 40 pounds to his frame in just two years. 
By 1943, Jack was an inch shy of almost six feet tall, and he weighed 185 pounds. Now you have to remember, this was at a time when most American males were five foot six or five foot seven, and their average weight was about 135 pounds. So, in anybody's eyes, Jack would have been considered a pretty big boy. On the other hand, Jack seemed like he was in trouble with the Marine Corps command almost from the first day he reported for boot camp in San Diego, California. He routinely racked up some of the lowest scores possible on his efficiency reports. On a 1 to 5 scale, Jack posted zeros and ones. Ouch. Frankly, these are the lowest scores we have ever seen posted in a World War II Marine file. In, a, in addition, Jack just seemed like he was restless. He didn't want to stick around wherever he was assigned. He won AWOL, or absent without leave, at least three times, and once stayed away from his post for over 44 days. All of these infractions, and his obvious attitude, which is shown in his photograph, brought multiple court-martials, and frequently landed him in the brig. Yeah, the brig, for those of you who are not military-oriented, is the name for the jail in the Marine Corps or Naval Service. In World War II military parlance of the day, Jack was just considered a foul ball. When Jack escaped from the brig in San Diego in December 1942 and took off again, the Marine Corps, when they caught him, which they did, threw the book at him. On 3 March 1943, Jack was tried at a court-martial for two charges. One, breaking arrest, and two, for desertion. Now, desertion during the time of war was a very, very serious charge, and Jack was certainly guilty, or so it seemed. Sure enough, during the trial, Jack was found guilty of the charges and sentenced to two years in prison and a bad conduct discharge. Jack's life was not headed in the direction he wanted, and he asked his court-appointed attorney, First Lieutenant Casper Hegner, if he... Jack, that is, could address the court personally. Permission was granted, and I hope, in reading his words, I can do some justice to Jack's actual words that were recorded in the court transcript. I have no idea what Jack's voice sounded like, but I suspect his Texas accent and mine are pretty similar. In his own words, this is exactly what Jack told the court. I have been confined in the Camp Elliott Brig since August 24th and had been in the brig for almost four months on December 15th, except for a brief release to the hospital to have my appendix removed. I took an opportunity to, to escape the bad crowding and the noise in the brig and the mental strain for a short time just before Christmas with the full intention to return and no intention to desert. I joined the Marine Corps on December 9, 1941, immediately after the attack on Pearl Harbor, with but one purpose, and that was to fight for our country, even if it meant my life. I understand that the charge against me, if proven, may prevent me from doing my duty as a Marine. I ask the court 
not to keep me from the chance to prove myself worthy of being a Marine for the sake of my mother and my father, who are ignorant of the fact that I am in the brig. I realize the danger in which I have placed myself and that I should not have lost hope of going overseas when I was transferred out of a combat unit. I have every intention of keeping out of trouble like this and of doing my duty as a Marine when I am given the chance. Well, those were Jack's heartfelt words, and he swayed the court. His sentence was held in abeyance for a period of one year while Jack was given the time he asked for to prove himself. Basically, Jack was put on probation with the knowledge of a two-year prison sentence hanging over his head if he screwed up again. He had no room to be a foul ball anymore. Jack was soon shipped to New Zealand, where he joined a new unit, a combat unit. Bravo Company, 1st Battalion, 6 Marines. They were in New Zealand preparing for an invasion of Tarawa. True to his word, Jack stayed out of trouble in New Zealand and boarded a transport ship with his unit in November 1943 to participate in the invasion of Tarawa. On the transport that took him to the Gilbert Islands, Stambaugh told a boyhood friend, Private Leon C. Randall, also of Bowie, Texas, quote, I don't know how I'll feel when I get into battle, but I don't think I'll be afraid. I might just be blowing off now, but I think I'll be a fighting fool. The fighting fool from Bowie, Texas, got his chance just before dawn on the day on which the island was secured after one of the bloodiest battles in Marine Corps history. Jack's unit valiantly had held off a series of counterattacks throughout the night without giving an inch. During a pause in the fighting, some Japanese infiltrated the lines and began attacking the Marines in their foxhole. Jack heard the cry of a buddy behind him who had been bayoneted by a Japanese. With his own rifle jammed, Jack came out with his fixed bayonet to aid his buddy. Suddenly, four Japanese soldiers loomed up in front of him. On June 19, 1947, two years after the war had ended, Jack's family received the following notice from the War Department. Quote, the President of the United States takes pride in presenting the Navy Cross posthumously to Private Jack R. Stambaugh, United States Marine Corps, for service as set forth in the following citation. For extraordinary heroism while serving with Company B, 1st Battalion, 6th Marines, 2nd Marine Division, in action against enemy Japanese forces at Tarawa, Gilbert Islands, 22 November, 1943. Observing four Japanese soldiers attacking a wounded Marine in an isolated position during the height of a fierce enemy night counterattack, Private Stambaugh unhesitatingly risked his life to race to the aid of his helpless comrade and, closing in for a brief savage encounter, killed all four of the enemy with his rifle and bayonet before succumbing to a neck wound 
inflicted by a saber-wielding Japanese officer. By his intrepid spirit, courageous actions in the face of heavy odds, and unselfish devotion to duty, Private Stambaugh served as an inspiration to his fellow Marines and upheld the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. He gallantly gave his life for his country. Signed, for the President, James Forrestal, Secretary of the Navy. Greater love than this hath no man that he lay down his life for a friend. Well, these words would make a fitting epitaph for Marine Private Jack R. Stambaugh, 19 years old, of Bowie, Texas, who lost his life in the battle for Tarawa when he went to the rescue of a buddy who had been bayoneted by a Japanese soldier. Unfortunately, there is no grave and no marker for Jack upon which to engrave his epitaph. While Jack's mom and dad back in Bowie received Jack's Navy Cross Medal, the Marine Corps had lost Jack's burial location. I know, it now seems incredible that a hero who was awarded the second highest military decoration, ranked below only the Congressional Medal of Honor, has been officially classified as missing in action for over 75 years. But, we today are not going to end Jack's story there. The Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation has continued to investigate Jack's case. And we have determined where Jack was buried on Tarawa and where he still lies awaiting recovery, identification, and a return home as the fighting fool of Bowie, Texas. If you are a relative and hearing this, if you're a relative of Private Jack Rudolph Stambaugh, please contact us at our website so that we can share the information on your hero's location. He is not lost. He is not forgotten. Jack is just waiting for us to bring him home. And finally this week, we want to give you a kind of an update on last week's episode, episode number 17, which was titled, Finding Private Fox, Where Have You Been? Well, remember our episode described the fact that Private Fox was identified over two years ago, but the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency, or DPAW, has not yet released any information about where he was found, nor have they sent him home to his family. In the episode, we implored DPAW to change their policy and let us know some facts about his recovery. Well, after the episode aired last week, Peepaw announced the identification of two other Marines, Staff Sergeant Wesley Kronig and Platoon Sergeant George Trotter. But instead of putting more information in the identification announcement release, Peepaw decided to put less information in the announcement. Now, we don't even officially know if these two Marines were Punchbowl Cemetery Unknowns or found somewhere in the field on Tarawa. Officially, we don't know that information. But, again, it's more examples of no home for heroes. Fortunately, our investigators and researchers know exactly where both of these heroes have lain for the last 75 years, and we'll be happy to provide the information to the families 
even if the government will not. More dysfunctional management by the Defense POW-MIA Accounting Agency. Some things just never change. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Home for Heroes. We hope you've enjoyed today's production, and we invite you to check out our other episodes. You can now subscribe to listen free on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you like to listen to podcasts. Don't forget to tune in every Saturday when we will post a new episode of History's Military Mysteries Missing in Action. Episodes of No Home for Heroes are produced from the actual investigative case files of the Chief Rickstone and Family Charitable Foundation, dedicated to providing information to the families of missing American servicemen and missing American servicewomen. As always, we greatly appreciate your comments, and a special link is available for you to contact us on our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. Our next episode is titled The Eternal Patrol of the USS Triton. Learn how a World War II American submarine was lost with all hands on her sixth war patrol in 1943, officially under unknown circumstances. But, and there's always a but in history's military mysteries, you sure don't want to miss them, miss this one, because the ship's bell of the USS Triton is on display at the Navy's Great Lakes Naval Training Center, even though the ship has never been found. How did this happen? Well, find out next week on No Home for Heroes. Until that time, be careful, be safe, and wishing you fair winds in following seas, I'm your host, Rick Stone, reminding you that poor is the nation that has no heroes, but shameful is the nation that, having heroes, forgets them. <laughs>